0: Okay. Well, for those of you that are here, thank you for being here this morning on this holiday weekend. Um, Let's open with a word of prayer quickly. Dear Heavenly Father, by your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I pray now that you would cause us to live as those who, who have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, as those who have true hope. May we every day rejoice in this, even though we deal with real stuff in life, real trials, really difficult times. May we every day wake up and rejoice in the hope we have in Jesus Lord, when we're most grieved, we know that you are faithful to renew us, and we are grateful for that. So I pray that you would renew us in our our deepest times of sorrow, and that every day, even when we're not in the midst of suffering, that you would renew our spirits, that you would uh, continue to build the foundation that you have given us uh, of yourself, of Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I pray that you would Remind us that all we really have is you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See, are there any of you who weren't here any of the last two weeks? Okay, there are a couple. I may do a quick review of the last couple of weeks just for about five minutes here. Kind of see where we're at in this study. Um, for those of you who were not here... We're working through this book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. And I think we still have a few copies out on the book table. Do you know, Steve? You okay. So I know that <clears throat> Steve Fultz had put some out there. They may all be gone now. but um, So two weeks ago, we began a section of this study that we're going to finish today. That first section we call uh, Understanding the Furnace, a really understanding suffering. Um, so we've been trying to look from the outside looking in at the basic phenomenon of human suffering. And we've looked at the different ways that different cultures, religions, and eras in history have tried to help people face and get through uh, suffering. So today we're going to finish that by looking at the problem of evil. Such an easy topic to, uh, to discuss. And we're, we're going to look at some responses that we can give to it. Last week, uh, Johnny was teaching, and he looked at the differing approaches that Christians and non-Christians have for providing hope during times of loss and especially of death. So he said that a non-Christian approach provides little to sufferers in their worst times. So what happens after we die? After you die, you just simply cease to exist, or in some cultures... Uh, we would say that you exist as an impersonal, anonymous fragment of the cosmos. So there's no real hope there. And and Johnny said that ultimately Christianity offers greater hope. Uh, it, It offers greater room for sorrow as well and greater freedom. It gives us meaning and purpose as we share in Christ's suffering. Even in death in Christianity, we find love and acceptance in God instead of condemnation and judgment. Um, even in death, we find those things I- instead of just ceasing to exist. So we're, we're taught that one day all things will be made new and perfect and we'll be with Christ forever. And this is our hope. Christianity says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Interesting thing he said is we're taught that our obedience to God is actually more important than preserving our lives. And and when he talked about this, it it made me think about Psalm 63. I think it goes hand in hand with it when the psalmist says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I think about that because, yes, we, we are to be obedient like Christ even to the point of death. But there's joy in that because of how greatly we're loved by our God. So, so the same language, we are obedient. Um, our obedience is more important than our lives. God's great love for us is more important even than our lives. And is so much bigger even than death. And the most compelling evidence of his steadfast love for us is found in just that, that Jesus gave his own life for us. Why? Why did he do it? Because of the great love with which our God has loved us. So this is the victory of Christianity in suffering. It's simply a better approach uh, for someone who is actually going through a time of suffering. <clears throat> now, Johnny didn't get to get into chapter 3 of the book, and, and I want to touch on it for just a moment. Um, I'm not going to get to all of it. Uh, in fact, he had a really good detailed handout. If you want it, uh, it's downloadable online too. So, <clears throat> Excuse me. A lot of atheist thinkers today claim that a fully secular view of life eliminates what we call the problem of evil. So they say that we don't have to spend time worrying about why we suffer. Because there is no why. They say there's no meaning in suffering. So why worry about it? And that, that instead frees people, up, or, frees people up to concentrate on making the world a better place. Doesn't that sound great? We don't have to worry about why we suffer. Let's just Fix it. So Tim Keller argues that while this is a common intellectual view, in Western society it doesn't work in practice. And we see it time and time again. The same people who say this is their view don't practice it in reality. It's for good reason largely ignored by actual sufferers. And instead they turn to older spiritual approaches. Keller discusses several differences in this chapter between Christianity and secular humanism. Um, people, you know, We have to have something that a group of us agree <clears throat> is more important than our own... Excuse me. <clears throat> more important than our own self-interests. Where were we? To build real community with others. It, secular humanists often do good things for others. That's true. We see that in the world. And that would seem to be very selfless. But when I am the final authority on what's right and wrong, and nothing is more important than my right to live as I see fit, then it's hard to have tight community with others. So even the good things that I do if I'm a secular humanist, um, for, for and with other people, it's ultimately about me. Christianity, on the other hand, gives us strong community, focused not on me, but on something outside of me. Our purpose in Christianity is to, what? What is our purpose? There you go. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So, what does that do? That frees us up to not care so much about me. And that is very, very freeing. Reminded me, as we we talk about other cultures that are very inward-focused, and especially the Western secular culture, um, the way that we compare it to Christianity, that's very outward-focused. To a G.K. Chesterton quote in his book, Orthodoxy, he says, um, and he's specifically calling out Buddhism here, but he says, Buddhism is centripetal, but Christianity is centrifugal. It breaks out. Um, I think this imagery is so good, it helping me personally visualize what we're talking about. Um, Keller talks about in, in his book, I think it's Jesus the King, um, and Darwin has talked about it from the pulpit, about the, the dance that, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have had for all time in relationship with each other. They're always moving outside of themselves and into others. And that's the, the, the example that we have for relationship. So I think it's very good imagery. Um, and I happened across an article recently by a British guy named Mark Vernon. He had uh, he'd gone on a three-day retreat at a Western Buddhist meditation center in England. It's a place that people go for silent meditation. And really, for, for the people who go, it's become kind of a place to, to go and fix myself. Um, the practice is designed, as it is in Buddhism, to address the reality of suffering. I don't believe Mark, the guy who wrote it, is particularly religious. He didn't really lean any one particular religious way. Um, He certainly didn't let on to that. But here's what he said about his experience, about why people go there. And in the end, he actually gives a really great comparison to Christianity that is spot on. So I'm going to read a few, few paragraphs that I pulled out from this article. He says, It's religion as a kind of therapy, and points to one of the reasons... <clears throat> that Buddhism is finding such an, uh, such a ready audience in the West. Modernity has damaged many egos, perhaps as a result of the Enlightenment teaching that we are autonomous selves, capable of self-creation, control, and consolation. Only, it turns out, that we are not so self-sufficient. Hence, if that's right, the spread of loneliness and alienation, stress and depression... Western Buddhism is developing a radical remedy for this condition. Look closely, it says, and you'll see that the self is an illusion. Let go of that, and liberation follows. However, it comes with risk. Meditation as therapy flirts with narcissism when it is devoted to observing yourself, for that can lead to self-absorption and self-obsession. It's a danger inherent in any community And this is really important what he says. Any community devoted to a particular task, though perhaps more so in one that lacks a reference point beyond the individuals taking part. Here's where it gets really interesting. This non-Christian, non-Buddhist says, religious houses in a Christian tradition would be different, in theory at least. Ultimately, they don't exist for the well-being of the occupants, but for the glory of God. That nurtures a way of life that has less to do with the self and more to do with the service of something greater. You have to believe in God, of course. That many don't and might say they are spiritual but not religious must be another reason why Buddhism appeals. But I did wonder whether a God-centered spiritual practice might offer a better way to get over yourself and in turn a more satisfying therapy. I suspect this is a key paradox with which Western Buddhism is currently grappling. The practice that tells you the self is a delusion could, in the modern context, deepen the very attitude it seeks to dislodge. So, I just love his outside perspective. Again, he doesn't claim to be a Buddhist. He doesn't claim to be a Christian. And he has very good insight there because, for one thing, he's seeing that people aren't really self-sufficient. So, the secular... Uh, teaching doesn't actually work. But then he's also... um, And he's saying that that attitude has led to loneliness and depression. Then he notes that Buddhism can actually make you more selfish when the goal is to teach you that self is an illusion. And he notes that Christian community may be a better way to get outside of yourself and deal with the troubles of life. So I, I like that outside perspective. I thought it was worth bringing in to see that sometimes the non-Christian perspective gives us the most insight. (laughs) Because when someone's trying to be real about what they see and not biased, they they get to the truth that we don't often see. So, that being said, there's a lot more that Johnny didn't get to this last week. Please read the book if you can. Chapter 3 is really good. But today, I want to move into this last part of the uh, first section of this study and deal with the problem of evil as well as we can. There's a quote I've got here on your paper uh, from the Scottish philosopher and historian David Hume. He says, "Epicurus's old questions are yet unanswered. Is he willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil or then where does evil come from? You know what before I actually move into that, do you' all have any questions or thoughts over the last sections anything from the last couple of weeks that that you would like to address or I, Lily uh, that that there's there's greater the the, yeah he he said uh he said that there's greater room for sorrow. And I think, and I didn't go into it because, you know, Johnny touched on it more. But um, I think just the idea that that we have a God who shows us how to be sorrowful. We, we have a God who in the flesh was, in fact, deeply sorrowful. And so we have an example that it's okay to, to move deeply into our sorrow. Well... Yeah, we're not in denial. So we can move deeply into that sorrow while understanding the truth of the hope that we have. Um, and I think that's that's the interesting thing. I think another point along those lines is that I think Christianity opens us up to have a lot more real questions. It allows us to ask stuff and we don't have to ignore it. You know, the stuff that's going on in our mind and God wants us to do that. I think that's important. So if, there, if there's no other thoughts, questions, anytime, just raise your hand and talk. Yes, because it fits more with the reality. What she knew of it, it fits more with the reality of life. She said a a Hindu you were talking with. I'm talking for this because it doesn't pick up. uh, Said that she had considered Christianity because it fits more with the reality of life, and that's what I think the the first few chapters have really come to. It fits more with the reality of life because the reality of life is suffering, and, and it deals better with suffering than any other religion, any other philosophy that I think the world has ever had to offer. So we look at this question from David Hume, really Epicurus. it's his question, um, about the problem of evil. Is God willing uh, willing to prevent evil but not able? Is he able to prevent evil but not willing? Is he both able and willing? And if so, where does evil come from? So let's look at it in this question in context a little bit. Um, I've got probably 15 books on my shelf at home that deal almost exclusively with this problem. (laughs) People write about it all the time. It it is uh, such a dealt with subject, but one that we continue to deal with. Why do you think that is? Yeah, every time you turn around, there is evil. It's just a reason or excuse to question God's existence. Sure, it's it's a it's a great excuse (laughs) to question God's existence, and uh, um, I think we'll see that it is it is probably the single most used excuse to question God's existence. Because I can look again, like you said, we talk about reality. I can look at my reality and say, my reality says that God doesn't exist. That's easy. It's easy to turn to that. Um, And so, so this has become the single strongest objection to the existence of God in general and to the plausibility of Christianity in particular. Um, So why didn't we address this the first week since it's the single largest objection? Um, Keller reminds us that suffering is a lived reality and that people and societies have wrestled uh, with it for centuries. Um, there on your paper, uh, I've got a quote from him, it says, Before suffering is a philosophical issue, it is a practical crisis. Before it is about why, it is about how. Now, we have actually talked about philosophical things the last couple of weeks, but they're really about how people suffer it, it, so we can understand that. And Keller says that we've, we've looked at how various societies have engaged evil and sorrow, and we've seen that everyone has to have some working theory of what suffering is, what it means and does not mean, and how we should respond to it. No one can function without some sort of beliefs about suffering. We've seen that Christianity, though indeed having a problem with evil, and it does until we address it, though having a problem with evil, does quite well when compared with other worldviews at helping its people understand and endure difficult times. This becomes clear when we look at suffering from all perspectives, sociocultural, practical, and psychological. So we did that first, but we're here now. This question of the problem of evil. This argument against God from evil is one that certainly poses problems. And with the foundation of what we've seen the first couple of weeks, I think we can try to address them now. So David Hume, in that quote, mentioned Epicurus' old questions. To put this in context, uh, context these were, were questions of Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, that he posed 300 years before Christ. So these are not new questions. But until sometime after the Enlightenment, these types of questions were basically just for philosophers. The everyday man didn't ask these questions. The argument against God from evil only became widely discussed when Western thought came to see God as more remote and to see the world as ultimately completely understandable through reason. Modern discussions of the problem of suffering generally start with an abstract God, a God who, for the sake of argument, is two things. What are they? In the argument against God, what what are the two things God is usually described as? All All-powerful and all-good. So these are the two things that that the arguments usually start with, that he's all-good and all-powerful. But they never start with he's glorious, majestic, infinitely wise, beginningless, and the creator and sustainer of all things. Important things about God, certainly. So modern people are far more prone than their ancestors because of the way that we can reason about the world, to conclude that if they can see no good reason for a particular instance of suffering, God could not have any justifiable reasons for it either. And the underline there, if evil does not make sense to us, well, then evil simply does not make sense. We have a lofty idea of what we think. That, that if I think something, surely it must be true. If I think something could not be true... Surely, it can't. God is already questionable since what is our highest value in this society? What is our highest value in this society? My, my freedom. My freedom, my happiness. What I want. <clears throat> so, God's already questionable since our highest value is the freedom and autonomy of the individual self. And the existence of a being like God is the ultimate barrier to that. We're quick to complain about suffering in the world because it aligns with our cultural biases. So what do we take away from this? We have to be aware of our cultural biases in order to be as thoughtful, balanced, and unprejudiced as possible when we look at these arguments. It's important for us to go back, and this is why we have in the last couple of weeks, gone back and look at what are our cultural biases, how do they affect the way that we think about this problem, before we address the problem itself. David Hume, was a first the skeptic philosopher. Yes. And his argument was because <clears throat> there's an evil, basically, you to, there is no God. Right. God must not exist. It ended, ended with Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you for, for that. We're going to actually go into that more here. Um Let's let's go ahead and jump to number two there. The arguments against God from evil, and we're going to start looking at, at what arguments people make, and, and how, um, and even the arguments perhaps at times we've had in our own minds, and how we should react to them, how we can react, and how we can ourselves work through these issues. So Keller says the problem of evil is widely felt among people today, and does indeed pose a genuine challenge to belief in God. Any God who is all-powerful and all-good would be expected to stop horrendous evil and suffering since He would not only want to prevent it, He would have the perfect ability to do so. Yet evil does indeed exist and persist. Therefore, the all-powerful and loving God either cannot exist or probably does not exist. These are kind of the arguments that we see. Either that, Because there is evil, an all loving and all powerful God cannot exist or probably does not exist. Um, Until recently, the argument against God from evil was considered among academic philosophers uh, to be conclusive, a, a proof that the traditional God of the Bible could not exist. It claimed that evil made Christianity not just less plausible, but logically impossible. Um, And we're going to look at this logical argument here that seeks to prove that there certainly is no such God. But just barely 40 years ago, uh, Alvin Plantinga uh, Plantinga published two books, God, Freedom, and Evil, and the other was The Nature of Necessity. In these, he argues that the existence of God is not logically incompatible with the existence of an all-powerful, all-knowing, and perfectly good God. Plantinga's arguments and those of other philosophers who followed in his footsteps were so effective that within just 25 years after his books came out in <clears throat> 1974, the logical argument against God was virtually abandoned within professional and academic circles. You hear it still today, but it's much, much less prevalent. Um, we're going to talk about a couple of different uh, ways that that we try to defend uh, when we hear these logical arguments against god Uh, talk about two different terms here the first is a theodicy and the second is just the word defense we're going to talk about the difference between a theodicy and a defense Um, if you've ever read c.s lewis book the problem of pain which i know many of you have he gives a theodicy um Anyone seeking to provide a theodicy has set a very high bar. A theodicy seeks to give an answer to the big why question. Its goal is to explain why a just God allows evil to come into existence and to continue. It attempts to reveal the reasons and purposes of God for suffering so listeners will be satisfied that his actions regarding evil and suffering are justified. With a theodicy, and this is very important, the burden of proof is on the believer trying to make the point. So it's very difficult with a theodicy because it needs to be very all-encompassing. It can't leave any, any gaps or any holes. Otherwise, someone can poke holes in your argument. And so the burden of proof is on the believer with this type of defense that we give. Let's look at three different theodicies. Um, there, there are good things in each of them, perhaps, um, but let 's look at the weaknesses in each of them as well, and this will help us to um, to kind of get in the mode of thinking about the arguments uh, more clearly. The first is the the Odyssey of soul making and suffering. This says that evils of life can be justified if we recognize that the world was primarily created to be a place where people find God and grow spiritually into all they were destined to be. This happens through meeting and eventually mastering temptation, rightly making responsible choices, which results in a positive and responsible character that comes from the investment of costly personal effort. This type of soul-making is an infinite good and cannot be achieved by simply being created in a state of innocence. There's something to be said for that. The idea that, that perhaps we have real character built, by the fact that we weren't, that it wasn't just inbuilt in us. If, in fact, God created us perfect, as He did originally, if God created us perfect with perfect character, perfect love, and everything built into who we are so that we cannot sin, we cannot do anything other than love, it, they're giving the argument that, well, we build a real character, a real love uh, through. Um, through suffering that we go through the real weakness in this is that <clears throat> pain and evil do not appear in any way to be distributed according to soul-making need it does not and this doesn't account for suffering of little children or infants who die in pain or even as a side point for animals who suffer or the world itself that suffers it doesn't deal with any of that if if the purpose of suffering is just to build character in people. Well, there is that that purpose. It does build character. But it it, it leaves a lot on the margins that, that has to be dealt with. So there are a lot of holes you can easily poke in that. The second theodicy we've got here is the one of God, freedom, and evil. Or we could we'd usually think of this as the idea of free will. The idea that God created us not to be robots or animals. Of instinct, But free, rational agents with the ability to choose and therefore to love. But if God was to make us able to choose the good freely, then he had to make us capable of also choosing evil. God allowed evil in order to achieve the greater good of human freedom and love. So again, some good thoughts there. We are creatures created with free will by God. Uh, We are created to love. Um, We are not robots or animals of instinct. These are all true things. Um, But but there's a definite weakness here as well because this argument really only addresses moral evil, not natural evil. So what's the difference? Moral evil, obviously, is the stuff that, that you and I do to each other, the decisions we make that are wrong, and natural evil... Deals with things in the world, with disaster, with the stuff that man has no control over. Question is, is it really true that God could not create free agents capable of love without also making them capable of evil? It's an interesting question. The thing is, God Himself is sovereign, He has free will, and He cannot be evil. And he's capable of love. Not only that, he is the, the fountain of all love. He's the very source of all love. So if God is capable of love, not capable of evil, he has free will, and he's completely in control, could not he also create creatures who had those same aspects? Is God not capable of doing that? And that's the thing. The argument rests on the fact that God had to do it this way because it's the only way that he could cause us to have freedom and to truly love. The The third of these theodicies is the one of natural law. Natural law is real, it's important, and uh, I don't downplay uh, its importance in the world. Uh, And this is where C.S. Lewis has done such a good job of of arguing uh, this point, in various books he's written, various talks he's given. Um, It says that a world created by God must have a natural order to it. It could not be random, operating differently every moment. If we break natural laws, they must rebound on us. If I jump off a cliff, I will be hurt or killed. The natural evils that hurt so much are the byproducts of something that brings us even greater good. So... You make decisions, there are natural laws in place that are going to cause whatever happens. <clears throat> and, and he's saying that those are inherent, they're built in, we don't affect or change them, they don't change over time. The weakness here, and again we're looking at this not as just an argument, but as a theodicy. So the idea of explaining or justifying God's use or allowing of suffering in the world. The weakness is that most suffering does not happen in an orderly way. It's not proportionate to bad choices. If we only got hurt when we made bad choices, like the cliff jumping idea, then it would be painful, but it would seem fair, right? If I only suffered as a result of my own bad choices, I could say, that's fair. I made that decision. I paid for it. But suffering is so often random and horrific, and it comes upon people who don't seem to deserve it. So that's an easy hole, I think, to poke in that as being an overall explanation without any gaps. So there there are many other theodicies as well. And taken all together, they can account for a great deal of human suffering. Each theodicy provides some plausible explanations for some of the evil in the world. But they always fall short in the end of explaining all suffering. It's very hard to insist that any of them show convincingly how God would f- be fully justified in permitting all of the evil that we see in the world. In the past few decades, most Christian thinkers and philosophers have stopped seeking full theodicies and have begun suggesting Christians instead simply mount a defense. Alvin Plantinga, who we've, re- we've referred to already, says, "...I must say that most attempts to explain why God permits evil strike me as tepid, shallow, and ultimately frivolous. And we can add to these warnings the book of Job itself. It is both futile and inappropriate to assume that any human mind could comprehend all the reasons God might have for any instance of pain and sorrow, let alone for all evil. It may be that the Bible itself warns us not to try to construct these theories. This, this brought to mind when Habakkuk is complaining to God. And he's complaining to God about God allowing his people to be evil, to continue in their evil ways. Of course, he's complaining and saying, God, make them righteous. (laughs) And God doesn't answer in that way, does he? Um, The interesting thing is that God says, I have a much bigger plan. And he says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your, your days that you would not believe if told. Now, he goes on to tell him a lot about what he's doing. But still, I think God is showing he reserves much of the explanation for things to himself. And uh, we cannot explain it all. So instead, A, we worship him. <laughs> and B, we can work to mount a proper defense based on what we know to be true. So what is a defense? A defense seeks to prove that the argument against God from evil fails. A defense is simply meant to prove that the skeptics have failed to make their case. Shows the existence of evil does not mean God can't or is unlikely to exist. With a defense, the burden of proof is on the skeptic, not the believer. And that's the beauty of it. So let's look at the logical argument here again or a logical argument in kind of a scenario. So we have a skeptic's argument that that what? A truly good God would not want evil to exist. An all-powerful God would not allow evil to exist. Evil exists, though. So, therefore, a God who is both good and powerful cannot exist. That's the skeptic's argument. Well, what could be a believer's response or defense? The believer may say that it may be that Someone has a very strong desire for something and is able to obtain this thing but does not act on this desire because he has reasons for not doing so that seem to him to outweigh the desirability of the thing. So God might have reasons for allowing evil to exist that in his mind outweigh the desirability of the non-existence of evil. You ever thought about that? <laughs> There's a whole lot of might in here. There's a whole lot of maybe in here. But I think that's very important. Because again, we cannot fully understand the mind of God. And he tells us quite clearly in Scripture. So the skeptic comes back and says, Well, God could not possibly have any such reasons. (laughs) Of course, this would be a very hard thing for him to prove. He's reacting emotionally. He's saying, I don't see any reasons, so... So God could not. And the, the believer's response could be something like this. Well, we often allow suffering in someone's life in order to bring about some greater good. Doctors, Dr. Sneed, inflict painful procedures and treatments on people for their own good, right? Parents who punish children with loss of toys or privileges are causing pain, especially from the child's perspective, but it is for the child's good. So the skeptic's argument, okay, okay, that makes sense. But the real inconsistency then is that helpless people often experience horrendous violence and pain that have no obvious purpose toward instruction and character growth. It's a good argument. And so the skeptic might say, I can't see any reason for God to permit the kinds and magnitude of suffering that we see in the world. What's a response? A God who is infinitely more powerful than us? Because that's what we're agreeing. We're talking about a God who is all-powerful. A God who is infinitely more powerful than us would also be infinitely more knowledgeable than us. So why couldn't he have morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil that you can't think of? To insist that we know as much about life and history as the all-powerful God is a logical fallacy. That is, if we're saying... He is an all powerful God. So let's jump then. I think that's just kind of a scenario you can think about how you might answer some things. Let's jump then to something that's called the noceums objection. Philosopher Stephen John Wistra came up with the illustration of the noceums to reveal this fallacy in the argument from evil. He was responding to the writings of William Rowe, who argued that because we could not see any outweighing good, that might justify God's allowing suffering, there are no such goods. Wickster responds by telling Roe about a species of tiny fly that they call noceums in the Midwest. They have a painful bite, but they're so small you don't see them. Just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. It's, it's a powerful argument. They're, just because you cannot see anything, uh, see something, does not make it not real. And we have lots of evidence of that in our world. So that's the Achilles heel of the logical argument against God. If you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. And the idea that just because we can't think of reasons, God can't think of any, is more than a fallacy. It's a mark of great pride and faith in ourselves take just a moment, and I know we're running low on time here, but talk about the evidential argument. So we talked about the logical argument. Um, Now let's talk about the little bit weaker argument, the evidential argument, which reasons that there probably is no such God. Uh, Evil and suffering simply make God's existence improbable. Keller says, this argument rests on the same premises and has the same Achilles' heel. If we're unable to prove that God has no morally sufficient reasons for evil, we are certainly unable to assess the level of probability that he has such reasons, to insist that we have a sufficient vantage point from which to evaluate percentages or likelihood is to, again, forget our knowledge limitations. If there is an infinite God and we are finite, there would be no way for us to lay odds on such things. And then, and I'm just going to have to move on through here. Um, Keller talks about what he calls the, the butterfly effect. It says, if an all-powerful and all-wise God were directing all of history with its infinite number of interactive events toward good ends, it would be folly to think we could look at any particular occurrence and understand a millionth of what it will bring about. I'm sure many of you have heard of the butterfly effect, the idea that, that potentially the, the flap of a butterfly's wing here could cause a reaction that causes a reaction and a reaction that ultimately brings the downfall of an empire across the world. Something along those lines. And it, it's ridiculous but not ultimately really that ridiculous. If you think about the infinite possibilities that God is dealing with in His world around Him, to think that we could possibly, in our limited finite knowledge, understand those infinite possibilities, is crazy, really. I think important to talk about is the visceral argument from evil. So most people who in the face of actual evil object to God's existence don't do so for philosophical reasons, but they do it for visceral ones. Keller talked about a story of a woman, a true story of a woman who had been raped. And not only that, the man who raped her cut off her arms below the elbows. That, that invokes a response in you, doesn't it? He left her for dead, and somehow she lived. And she lived the rest of her life always remembering what happened to her because she couldn't use her hands. That's the kind of story that invokes a visceral response. The way we respond to certain kinds of evil comes initially from deep within. We get a feeling in our stomachs before it produces anything in our heads. With this type of reaction, we may say, You can keep your reasoning. I know the arguments. I know this doesn't technically disprove the existence of a personal God, but it makes no sense that things like this are justified in any way. This is just wrong." I don't want to believe in a God who would let this happen, whether he exists or not. And that is the argument I have heard more than any other argument from from people I've actually talked to. It's very difficult to argue with someone's visceral response to evil, since it's something that comes from deep within instead of a thought through logic. But it proves an interesting thing that, that Lewis comes back to regularly it proves that people have moral feelings they can't help. Where do these deep-seated moral feelings come from if there is no God? So that's a huge argument that Lewis makes. It's also really interesting that two people can have a completely opposite reaction to a similar experience. Keller tells of two men who experienced Nazi labor camps. And one of them completely lost his faith forever the moment that he first saw the furnaces burning the bodies of the people. And the other one later wrote the book Suffering and Hope, the Biblical Vision and the Human Predicament. The the message of the book is that the Christian hope of the resurrection and the renewal of the world enables us to view the present power of death in terms of its empty future and therefore in the knowledge of its sure defeat. So one man saw absolute hope. The other, he saw death as being the only thing. And the other saw death as being empty. It's interesting how that, that happens, and it's, it's all based on this visceral response. Um, and the last thing that, uh, that Keller talks about in this chapter is what he calls the boomerang effect, and this comes into play uh, with, with Lewis himself in, in coming to faith. Um, the question here is, what if evil and suffering in the world actually make the existence of God more likely, not less? What if our awareness of absolute evil is a clue that we know unavoidably at some level within ourselves that God actually does exist. So for years, Lewis rejected the existence of God for that reason, because the logical because he believed the logical argument from evil against God. And then he eventually came to realize that evil and suffering were a bigger problem for him as an atheist than as a believer in God. He concluded that the awareness of moral evil in the world was actually an argument for the existence of God, not against it. He had long argued for the existence or argued that the existence of cruelty and evil in the world was the reason he could not believe there was a good God, a moral purpose operating behind the universe. But then he began to realize that evil in the world was precisely the ground which we cannot use to object to God. Why? Well unless we judge this waste and cruelty to be real uh, to be real evils, we cannot condemn the universe for exhibiting them unless we take our own standard to be something more than ours. In fact, an objective principle to which we are responding, we, uh, uh, more than ours, in fact, an objective principle to which we are responding, we cannot regard that standard as valid. This was his conundrum as an atheist. His objection to the existence of God was that he could perceive no moral standard behind the world The world was just randomly evil and cruel. But then if there was no God, my definition of evil was just based on a private feeling of mine. And uh, he said, In a word, unless we allow ultimate reality to be moral, we cannot morally condemn it. And that's such an important argument to remember. Keller, I'll leave you with this. Keller says, The very basis for disbelief in God, a certainty about evil and the moral obligation not to commit it, dissolves if there truly is no God. The ground on which you make your objection vanishes under your feet. So not only does the argument against God from evil not succeed, but it actually has a boomerang effect on the users because it shows you are assuming something that can't exist unless God does. And so in a sense, you are relying on God to make an argument against God. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. How, what was her um, I don't believe there was any good response there. Oh. It was unfortunately not a good yeah. story, and it's one of those that really... Yes. Response, and Helen Killard, and John Anderson, those are yes. They, they are absolutely wonderful testimonies, and I think they... Those are a good response against, or argument against a visceral response that we have. Um, but the response is so strong sometimes because we know that there isn't always good that comes from these things that we can see. Um, and so it's, I think, that much deeper seated in us. Louis. To, um, how much more they could be I mean would they give it a thought that you know, there must be some power that's actually restraining it um, yeah oh, that, that would, it could would it much worse would you think of that? yeah you I mean I think that's a great point I think people probably don't think that very often but the idea that it's that we would have so much more evil if there was no one restraining it mm-hmm. because people are evil <laughs> um, I think that's an interesting thought and, and one we could give some time to uh, later <laughs> So let me, yeah. let me close this in prayer real quickly and I'll let you go to worship. Father God, we thank you that we're not left alone. We thank you that we have truth in our lives. We thank you, God, that um, we don't just have to react to our visceral responses, but that we have hope. We have um, an eternity of, of peace and prosperity and, uh, and wholeness. And we know that all things will be made right for those who believe in you. We pray, Lord, that we would, uh, based on that, we would be especially vigilant at sharing you with others so that others can share in that hope. And uh, we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.